How do fitness professionals who aren't marketing and technology experts build a profitable business? This podcast uncovers the secrets of fitness leaders who've already found financial freedom so you can take paid vacations, save for retirement, and work from anywhere in the world. I'm Kenton Boutwell, joined by co-host Nick Clayton, and this is the Fitness Leaders Podcast. Welcome to the Fitness Leaders Podcast. How you doing today, Nick? Doing great, Ken. How about yourself? Doing well. Beautiful day here in Nashville. I'm really looking forward to our guest today. I'm excited too. Tell me about them. So if you've ever been curious about the clean and jerk, snatches, or Olympic weightlifting, today's guest is the only American coach to have made the Olympic weightlifting team as an athlete and two times as a head coach. He's produced 43 senior national champions. 82 junior national champions, 41 youth national champions, 31 junior world team members, nine senior world team members, four youth world team members, and three Olympians. Our guest today is Michael Cohen. Welcome to the show, Michael. How's it going? Doing good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for being on. We're excited to talk to you and learn about your background and how you got into weightlifting and all that good stuff. So without further ado, we'll jump right in. Do you maybe want to tell the listeners out there, you know, kind of about your background, where you're from and, you know, how you got into fitness in the first place? I'm from Savannah, Georgia, born and raised here. My father is an elite weightlifter back in the day. My father was poised to make the 56 Olympic team. And then right before they left, he broke his neck at a freak accident. This is in obviously in the 56 and that ended his elite career. Uh, I was born two years later, and so there was no question what I was going to be. My father saw to that. I got a set of weights that my father got for me uh, while I was still in the crib. I still own those weights today. In fact, I got my first bar and my first set of plastic weights, uh, 1960. All four of my kids trained on that equipment, still have it today. I was born uh, in a a gym. Uh, I was the original gym rat. My father owned a gym in the 50s, and that's where I grew up. So I, I played around with the weights. I played all the other sports. But at the age of 13, I uh, I kind of zeroed in on Olympic lifting because I enjoyed the travel. My friends were getting excited about going across town for a football game, and I was flying around the country for competitions. And I told my father, that's something I'd like to do. And he said, well, you know, a lot of hard work, and you might make a world team, and then you start traveling all over the world. And then two years later, that's what I was doing. At 15, I started traveling around representing the United States internationally. And I, I stayed with the with weightlifting. I was fortunate enough to work my way all the way up to the Olympics and then on to uh, several world teams, uh, Pan American Games, international competitions all over the world. Uh, in, in, in the uh, late 80s, I, I uh, retired. You know, your body gets beat up enough and tore up enough that you, you've had enough. And so after the 88 Olympic trials where I got hurt in the Olympics uh, trials, my father convinced me to go into coaching, which is not something I wanted to do because I wanted to walk away. I did, and I enjoyed it. And in fact, I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I was very, very fortunate to uh, move up the the ladder. I started having uh, some kids that were working with me, and and two became four, and four became eight, eight became 100. And the next thing you know, Team Savannah was started while I was in a high school. And from that organization, from that group, we had several kids that qualified for international competitions. I went off to get my level one and level two USA weightlifting certification, coaching certification. And the next thing you know, I'm being selected as an assistant coach 
and then a head coach for youth teams and the junior teams and then the senior world teams. And in 1998, I was named the Olympic coach for 2000 and then turned right around and was named the Olympic coach for 2004. So I got to go as an athlete and got to go as a coach, which was a great honor. In 2005, uh, my fi- my wife, five-time national champion, and I had celebrated the birth of our fourth child, and she demanded I spend more time at home. <laughs> so uh, I walked away from the Olympic training, and I still work with my athletes. I still run the, the training center where we're at now, but it, it was a, a different experience. I, I, now I'm working with my kids, my personal kids making the same mistakes my father made and, and making some new ones and watch them develop into world-class athletes. Mikey is, is represented the United States internationally several times, including winning gold and placing at the world championships. Will, my middle boy, has done the same thing. He and CJ were the, uh, were the youngest ever to make a, a youth world team at 12. We've had some very, very good success with our kids. Now I'm uh, enjoying coaching and, and, and training some of uh, master athletes. I enjoy uh, working with special needs kids and special need programs. So I kind of do a variety of things now. Like let's a lot to unpack, and it's very impressive. But I've got I've got two burning questions that you have to ask. Savannah, Georgia, mm-hmm. you got a bit of a southern draw. Please tell me you're not a Bulldogs fan. Bulldogs? Oh, are you kidding me? The, the Bulldogs is is my second love. Alabama's my first love. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny because when I was 18, I was in the gym on a Saturday working out with a young man who was a, a top-notch football player in our area. And he was in the gym. We were working out together. And this old man walked in the gym and sat down in a chair to watch the boy train. Not me train, but watch the boy train. And that was Bear Bryant. And Bear Bryant traveled, drove his car, uh, a crimson Cadillac, all the way to Savannah, watched the boy train, brought his mom and dad in, and they signed his letter of intent right there in the parking lot of the gym. And ever since then, I became a a diehard Alabama fan. Well, I can't say much. I'm a Gator fan. Alabama's (laughs) been the team for the past decade, if not more. Sure. Um, but I think we could probably agree SEC football is the best. Oh, absolutely. That's that's you know it, it, you know it, it it's God and SEC football. That's, that's <laughs> really so my other question, I'm just real curious with all of your lifting experience between coaching and actually performing. Do you remember what it was like for your first event that you actually competed in when you were a kid? Oh, sure. I competed when I was five. I remember the competition. It was in Eastman, Georgia. Uh, I placed fourth. My father uh, went out and got a little, little, small, little trophy, engraved it, 123-pound class, which was the lightest class. Obviously, I didn't weigh that. I still have that trophy in my house. Uh, it's one of the few trophies I kept. So I remember that vividly. I remember what I did. I, I, I snatched uh, 30, I cleaned and jerked 45, and I pressed uh, 35. Yeah, that's, that's an incredible story. So, and there's a lot to unpack here, Coach. And just for you listeners out there, I know um, Coach Cohen, he actually taught me about Olympic weightlifting. And so we've known each other for a while. I want to kind of go back through what you were telling us. Obviously, this is a, a family affair, it seems like. Uh, and you talked about your dad. You said that he was into lifting. So I am just curious. When did he get into lifting and how did he get into that? My, my father, when he was in high school, got out of high school, he was very much into athletics. Uh, my father is, is about five foot three, five foot four, 148 pounds, and he was a boxer. He was doing some, some amateur boxing. His mother did not know. 
he went off to the uh, National Golden Gloves Championship in New York City and won, won the Golden Gloves. Now, in his last fight, he got beat up pretty good. He won a decision, but he had a black eye and, and he was tore up pretty good. So when he came back home, Mama saw him and Mama whipped his tush and forced him not to do that anymore. So in the boxing gym in Savannah, they also had some weights over there where some of the guys were lifting weights, not like what we would see today, but what you'd expect to see in the 50s. And so daddy gravitated to that because size was not big of a deal because there are different weight classes. Uh, he was uh, he, he got into the, the Olympic lifting and bodybuilding. My father placed second in the Mr. America contest. So he did a little bit of both. He was well-built. His best as 148 pounds, his best standing press, which is what they had before 1972, was uh, 286 pounds. That's five pounds below the world record. A snatch of 235 and a clean jerk of 319. So he was he was one of the one of the tops in the United States. Yeah, that is impressive. And I actually used to do a lot of boxing and stuff too. I don't know if you knew that, but that's actually how I got into mm -hmm. uh, fitness and weightlifting was through boxing. And my dad boxed too. And my great grandpa, but anyway, great story. So your dad obviously um, started weightlifting and got into the fitness scene, and then I guess at some point he got married. Had you? Yeah, married, married mama, and uh, he. My father was a school teacher here in Savannah because a gym business you didn't make no money back then. It was there was nothing there. You must understand back in the day we're talking about the fifties and sixties. Nobody was allowed to work out. I mean, you know, football players that worked out with weights, they were forbidden from playing football because it made you muscle bound and, and slowed you down and all these other kind of uh, stereotypes that, that obviously are, are, are myths that were destroyed later on. But it was no strength conditioning. No football program had it. No college had it. You, you, uh, you didn't do that kind of stuff. So he gradually brought kids in and brought people into the gym and trained and worked out and the, the top football players coming out of Savannah all trained with him. And so they had a huge advantage. And that kind of grew and grew and grew. And then in the late 80s, it exploded. And so his program was incredibly popular. And so obviously you come along, like you were saying, and I guess you competed in your first event, you said at age five. So at what age did you actually touch the barbell and start, you know, oh, kind I, of training I, for it? I mean, I got pictures of me in the crib with a barbell. Are you kidding me? <laughs> Uh, I started when I was about four. I've got, I've got great memories of the days in the gym working out. Uh, my father uh, treated me as a four-year-old, five-year-old. I mean, you know, you didn't work out for an hour and a half. I mean, it was 15, 20 minutes. Uh, Daddy believed in a lot of variety. And, uh, you know, he did things back then that they now teach to kids. You know, if you take a look at CrossFit for Kids, they do a tremendous amount of little things, plyometrics, a little bit of aerobics, a little bit of strength, flexibility. That's what I was doing. I did all those kind of things. So push-ups, chin-ups, sit-ups, the Olympic movements, uh, some assistant exercises, obviously squats, but presses and curls and upright rows and things like that. So you're doing some calisthenics. Yeah, yeah, a little um, bit of so... everything. A little bit, literally a little bit of everything. Uh, you know, I remember when I was uh, 10, 11 years old, I could do 32 hanging chin-ups which is where you pull your chin all the way over and then let it all the way back down. Not like they do now, but it was up and down very slowly. 150, 160 push-ups nonstop. And of course, sit-ups, you just go all day long and sit up. So it, it was something I worked on and I was, I was pretty good at it. Michael, so, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, your, your start point. What, where's your passion come from? Like what motivated you to kind of keep going, you know, and compete at these high levels? I, 
I enjoyed the competition. I really enjoyed the travel. I mean, you, you got to understand, uh, I grew up in a time of lifting where there was a, a serious Cold War. You had an East Germany, you had a Russia, uh, Soviet Union, you had a Bulgaria, Poland, you know, a Hungary. They were all Eastern European. And, and to go to those countries was unheard of. Americans didn't go there. You didn't go to Poland. You didn't go to, to Moscow. You didn't do that. And and there I am going all the time. I mean, you fly into Berlin and, and you arrive at the airport. You're in West Berlin and you get in a special truck and you drive through the Brandenburg Gate. And now you're in East Germany. I mean, you know, it, it was absolutely a, a unique time uh, to be one of the first teams to be allowed into China to, to compete in 1980. It was a very unique time. I really enjoyed the, the, the seeing the history and not just reading about it, but, but, but being there from from walking the Great Wall of China to the Barrier Reef to, to you know, to, to the horrors of World War II in, in Germany and the Soviet Union. I mean, it, it was you got to see things that most people read about. And I was there. I saw it. You know, I, I've been fortunate enough to spend a lot of time in a lot of different places. Uh, uh, the six trips to uh, Israel. If you're really a history buff, that's probably the greatest place in the world to go. So I, I thoroughly enjoy it, and uh, I enjoyed that part of it. Obviously, the competition, obviously, the, the the trying to push yourself to be the best you can be in a in a sport, and obviously, as as every young man would dream back then, it's the Olympics, you know. And you didn't make the Olympics for the money because there was no such thing as as professional. There was no money. You made it for the glory and the honor, and to wear the Olympic rings. That was the that was the, the, the basically the push. For me for my entire career all right well we're going to jump back in to kind of going back through the history so okay. like you said age five you do your first competition so what happens kind of throughout your childhood do you just get deeper and deeper into competition and keep progressing or kind of what's your school no, life I, like? I go in and out uh you know I, I i played other sports like i said i didn't get serious until i was 13 13 okay. i got i got serious but I, I, you know, I, I, I took time off during the summer. I, you know, I did typical, you know, I swam every day and, 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 and stayed up late at night and watched the movies. I mean, I did, I did typical kid stuff and I didn't get real serious until about 13, 13. I played football for the state uh, championship team out of Savannah. And the next step was to play high school ball. And, and I'm looking at the fact that I enjoyed it. I enjoyed playing. I was pretty good at it, very explosive, but I couldn't go anywhere. I looked at my mom and my dad, and I said, you know, I ain't never going to have size to me. So I said, you know, I think I'm just going to stick to what, what I'm pretty good at and, and, and push that. So I remember telling the, the coaches at school that I wasn't going to play, and then the rest, of, the rest of the time was converted to Olympic lifting. Basically, between the ages of 5 and 13, you're kind of in and out. Doing in and out, all yeah, kinds yeah, of yeah, things. yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. Yeah, I, I, you know, my father – coached me and he was very very strict incredibly tough disciplinarian uh, a lot of times if i didn't make the lift he would tell me point blank you don't make that you're not going home tonight and he was serious <laughs> so but it, it's you know it's a different world and and i uh i was able as an athlete to be able to look at my father in the gym not as my father but as my coach and then when i walked out of the gym he instantly became my father i was able to separate the two completely. My kids can't do that. I'm, I'm the daddy and that's it. And so if I get in a gym and I'm pushing them as a coach and they don't like that, then I'm going to hear about it for the next four or five days outside the gym. So it's very, very different, different things. I was very regimented. I enjoyed the discipline of it. Uh, you know, I, I, 
I like the fact that as a uh, an athlete in a team sport like like football or basketball or baseball, one man could could mess up and and not do his job, and the whole team falls apart. One person could make a mistake. In my sport, when you walk out on that platform, it's you. There's nobody else. It's you. You make the lift. You make the lift. You miss the lift. You miss the lift. That's it. And I really like that. I like to get the credit. And I like to take the blame when I messed up. It's definitely, like you said, an individual thing, mm-hmm. kind of like boxing, right? Oh, yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, the okay. difference is, Kent, the difference is, is that in weightlifting, if you lose, then you lose. And in boxing, if you lose, you got beat up. So there was a big difference. <laughs> Great analogy. So going back to the story, at 13, you make a decision. You say, that's when you go all in. So what oh, yeah, happens? Oh, After yeah. you make that decision, uh, at that I, point, I are compete, you? Yeah, no, I competed in national junior championships, which is 20 and under. Uh, at age 13, I placed, th- I placed third. Uh, next year, age 14, I go back. I'm in the 132-pound class. I placed fourth. The United States selects their top 15, uh, 20 male athletes to go to a two-week camp in Washington, D.C., and that is reserved for first and second place only. And the coaches association named me to that team at 14. I was the youngest one. Everybody else there is 19 or 20 years old. I'm there at 14. And so a a tremendous honor. Uh, We got to stay at the Barrett place there in Washington, D.C. I got to go to the White House when Nixon was in. That's a nice picture of the entire team in front of the White House with the the president and everything. And it was a, a great experience. At the age of 15, I go back to the Nationals when I win. My first time winning the competition. And then at 16, I go there and I break all the records. And then I'm named to the junior world champion, first junior world championship in Marseille, France, 1975. And I go there and I place eighth at the, at the world championships. So I was excited about now I'm really traveling. And so uh, that started the whole, the whole career, you know, and then it was just, you stay with it. You work your way up the ladder. You know, you, you, you dominate the junior level. And now all of a sudden you got to start competing against the seniors, which is a different level altogether. And in uh, 78, I had an off year. 79, my father uh, sent me to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, where I lived for the next three years. And all I did there was eat, sleep, and train. And uh, 1980, I qualified for the Olympic trials and the Spectrum in Philadelphia. I go there on my third attempt, do or die, clean and jerk. I clean and jerk the weight I need to make the Olympic team. So I make the 1980 Olympic team. And then the rest is just travel and compete, travel and compete, and, and you go and you go. And at the age of, and then at, uh, in 82, my father traveled from Savannah by car all the way up to Olympic Training Center, where he knocked on my door unannounced. I was stunned. I thought it was a problem somewhere. And my father said, son, you know, everything's going good. Your training's going good. You're looking fantastic. Everything's going great. But eventually, you got to live. And you've got no job, you got no career, you got no education. You're gonna to have to come back to Savannah and go back to college. So I thought about it, and I went and told the head coach there that that's what I was gonna do. And I remember him telling me, "You will, you will never be as good as you are now. You will obviously go backwards, and your career will be over." And so I accepted that, and I, I moved back to Savannah. And the next year, I make the uh, world team. I dominate. I set the American records, and uh, I prove everybody wrong. I went on to get my uh, degree. And then I got my graduate degree, and then the rest is rest is history. That's an incredible story. I do want to ask you two questions. One of them was you kind of touched on, you know, you're obviously starting this at a very young age, but like, how do you balance your schoolwork even when you're in high school and this 
you know, you're obviously training at an elite level. Was that hard? It's it's not hard. It is, but it's not hard. I was very, very focused. I, 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 I did not mind the, the rigid life that, that the lifting required. In other words, it's not just the lifting. It, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's getting prepared to lift and it's the training and it's the, the after the training, which is your, your, you know, your saunas and your rub downs and then all those other kind of things. And then you got to go back to the house and study. I was a, an average student, slightly above average student, a 3.0 student, both in high school and college and graduate school. I, I learned real quick that you can't put things off. You know, if I got an assignment, I tried to do it right away. I didn't like putting things off that, that just, you know, things, things jumped on you real quick. I was on a trip to uh, uh, Belgium for a competition. And I remember flying out. And of course, we had no computers back then. So the, the professor gave you the assignments that you needed. And I remember flying there there for a week and flying back. And as I was over the Atlantic Ocean, I realized I hadn't even opened the books. And so now I'm cramming everything in because I knew as soon as I got back home, I was going to go right back into it. And I told myself that'll never happen again. And from that moment on, it did. I, I stayed focused with it. And so it's, it's, you know, it's, it's eating right. It's sleeping right. It's you, you put your whole life on, on hold. You put everything on, hold. you know, your marriage, your, your, your children, everything is waited. You wait until it's done. And then, then you, then you proceed that route. The other question was, so like you were saying, you're in high school. I guess I want to kind of know about when you first got in your, your first international competition, mm -hmm. you know, what, how that compared to, you know, before you're just competing in the U S but what was it like to there, compete? There on is international? no greater thrill and excitement that when you receive a, a box in the mail and it's from the weightlifting federation, you open the box up, and there is your uniform. There's your sweatsuits with the rings on it. And there's your there's your 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 lifting bag and all the other things that go along with it. And it's all says Team USA on it. And you know it, it's it's not the Olympics, but it's 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 your next step up. And I remember being so proud of the uniform. And in fact, I still own that uniform. You know, it was it was a dream come true. And then you know you go to the next competition. And there's another box. And then it's it's like Christmas. And it just starts. It just starts snowballing. So those are the things that I remember more than anything in the world. That was what I really liked about the fact that you were taken care of. You were given the things you need to be successful. And, and uh, you know, it, it, it kept me going the right direction. Yeah. Well, were you more nervous when you had to go overseas? I guess like the first oh, no. time you remember no. that? Or well, you got to understand, when I went overseas the first <laughs> probably 20, 25 times, my father went with me. He was a coach for the United States. So daddy got to go with his son. And, you know, we were the only father's son. In fact, even today, when I travel around the world, uh, coaches remember young Cohen and older Cohen, you know, father, son, and the thing. And it, it's, it's kind of nice how that, that still, it still carries on. But I was never overly nervous. I get, ner I get more nervous for my athletes when I send my athletes out, especially my kids. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. But I never, you know, I, I kept focused. I, I did, it didn't bother me. Watching your son prepare to go up on a stage or do or die lift. You make the lift, you win the medal, you miss it, you're, you know, you're, you're down the, the totem pole. That's gutsy. That, that's tough. That's what gives you the damn, uh, you know, you're doing the tum situation all day long on that deal. Right, well, let's fast forward to you competing. And then at some point you make the Olympic team. Um, anything you want to say about that or, you know, how that felt, maybe just what it was like to, to make the I went team to, or what happened? Yeah, I went to the Olympic trials. Uh, I was not the favorite by any stretch of imagination. That year, 1980, we probably had about nine guys in the 181-pound class. 
any one of those nine could win. That's how thick we were. We were literally that thick. And uh, went into snatches. I made two snatches and pounds, 314 to 325. I missed 330. And I placed second in the snatch. So I was in great position. They take the top two in the 181-pound class because it's such a difficult class to the Olympics. So going into clean and jerk, my father looked at the board and realized that if you make 177 kilos, 391, you more than likely will make a team. So let's start with that weight. Now, remember, in weightlifting, you get three attempts. That's all you get is three attempts, not at one weight, but total. So your first attempt is always a weight that's light enough that you know you can make to get you on the board. But this is the Olympic trials. It's do or die. So he opened me with 10 pounds more than I've ever even tried in competition. And so I missed it the first time, bad. I missed it the second time, bad. And on the third attempt, I went out there and I cleaned it, which was the first time I cleaned it. And I stood with it. I made a powerful jerk. And I got the down signal and I made it. Now, it's not over because everybody else has a chance to beat you. So they now know because you've got the snatch, you've got the clean jerk, you've got a total. Now everybody knows all I got to do is beat that number. So some guys were trying uh, 413, 424, because I was way ahead of everybody but one in the snatch. And as it turns out, everybody missed. Everybody was trying like me. They tried for, for far more than they ever tried before. And I'm sitting back in the back, and I'm just listening. Because what you want to hear is you want to hear – the weights crash down the ground and then the buzzer. That means they missed the weight before the down signal. The last thing you want to hear is the down signal and then the crash. That means they probably made it. So I'm sitting back there. I'm not watching. There's no TVs. I'm not watching. I'm listening. And you hear it. But, you know, and, oh, my God. And as it turned out, the only person that made the weight was the guy that was already ahead of me. I didn't need to beat him. I just need to beat everybody else. And I, I made the team. So I remember the last guy went out to try some ridiculous weight, like 440 pounds to make the team. He had a very weak snatch and it wasn't even close. And my father turned around and shook my hand and said, son, you made the team. Two days later, they have the official board of directors get together and they select the 10, which is a it's a it's a formality. It's already been done. But that's when you officially be recognized as an Olympian. And that's when it happened. So I got to come back to Savannah as an Olympian. So tell us about the Olympics. How did that go? Well, you got to understand, uh, 1980, we boycotted. That was the boycott Olympics, the Moscow Olympics. The Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in the, in the late 70s. And President Carter came up and said that basically that if the Russians didn't get out of Afghanistan, then we weren't going to send our Olympic team. And that's exactly what, what happened. So I was on the ill-fated Olympic team, 1980. The Olympic Committee, Olympic Committee had us all go to Washington, D.C., where they gave us our outfits and our rings and all the other paraphernalia the Olympic team gets, but you're not going anywhere. The President of the United States, along with the Weightlifting Federation, came up with a very ingenious opportunity, and that was the Chinese were going to compete in their very first Olympics. They just came out of the Mao Revolution, which barred them from competing in the Olympics. And so the Chinese decided to boycott the Olympics with the United States. So the United States and China held a alternate Olympics competition in Shanghai in 1980. There were 28 countries there. All 28 were boycotting the Olympics along with the United States. It was a six-week phenomenal experience to go to China. Uh, again, it was not open to the American public at all. It was a closed society. To go there, to go to Shanghai, to be part of that, 
Uh, I lifted as a 181 pounder there, uh, did real well, went into the cleaner jerk and I missed my second attempt. The Chinese guy who was competing against me made his, and then he jumped to 396 and made it, which meant that if I made the same weight, I beat him because I beat him in a snatch. And so after missing 391, I jumped 396 and went on the last attempt and made the lift in front of 30,000 Chinese. And so it was a, a tremendous opportunity to have the, uh, the uh, American anthem played in Shanghai at that time. It was, it was really something, really something. Yeah. Well, that's an incredible story. And I'm sure you saw a lot. So I want to fast forward to, okay, we've gotten through the Olympics. At what point do you transition into coaching? In 1986, I was teaching at a high school here in Savannah, just transferred over. The principal there said, you know, we'd love to get a weightlifting program together for our football team, and, and we'd like to have you do it. And so I went into their an industrial arts building that was uh, uh, converted, very little equipment, I mean, uh, no, no equipment, basically. And so that was my building. And so I got some weights, and I got some bars, and some benches, and and squat racks, and we started a program there for the football players. I had that first year, I had four young men that wanted to take weightlifting to go a little further. So I actually took them to North Carolina for a competition. And when we got there, all four guys won. We got back to Savannah, and the next day in school, next thing I know, I got I got 12 guys wanting to do weightlifting. And so we started a weightlifting program after school. And then next thing you know, I got 24 and 36 and 40 and 50. And, and, and so the head football coach didn't like the fact there were more people training Olympic lifting than playing football. And so he and the athletic director had a meeting with the principal and they basically said, uh, came to me and said, look, here, you can't work with the, the, the guys anymore. You can work with what you got, but you can't have any more guys come in. And like a smart idiot, I said, can I work with the girls? They got to understand there's no female weightlifting. And of course, they both laughed and said, sure. And so I'm now working with the girlfriends of the boys. I'm working with the cheerleaders. I'm working with the, the softball players. And two become four, four become eight, eight become, you know, a bunch. And the girls team in 1989 win the national championships. And the next thing you know, I've got on that group, I've got three girls that make the United States junior world team for females. And then in 1990, one of my girls in the 50 kilo class qualifies for the men's national team. She was 14 years old, weighed 109 pounds, and she qualified for the men's 56 kilo class. It was unbelievable. And I remember telling the weightlifting federation, the president, that you need to put her on a name, name her to the team. And he said, I'm not naming a girl to my men's team. The Atlanta Constitution picked it up, and the next thing you know, it was an international story. And it stayed that way for about seven months. And so that spearheaded a program that it absolutely exploded in Chatham County. And part of that spinoff was the facility I'm in now, which is the Anderson Cohen Olympic Training Center, one of the largest training centers in the United States. This is a county-run facility designed for Olympic training, but we do everything here, but it was designed for Olympic training. It was designed because so many media groups were coming into Savannah to film the kids training that we were training in an abandoned school cafeteria, no heat, no air, no nothing. It was God awful. And, and, and everybody got, got kind of embarrassed. So we, the Chatham County passed what they call a special one cent sales tax. And part of that money went to build this facility, which has been expanded three times since 1995. 
Yeah, and I've actually been in that facility, uh, Nick, just so you know. I went to visit Coach, trained there, and he has a facility, like you're saying, named after him and his family. And It's, it's a beautiful facility, yeah. Something yeah, else. Sounds- keep up. We keep updating it, bringing in new equipment, adding new programs. It's, 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 it's something to watch. Something to watch. Yeah. Well, what was it like to transition from being an athlete, you know, into coaching? How was that experience? For you? Uh, being an athlete is far easier, much easier. It, it's much easier. You know, it is it, being the coach is tough because you send the athlete out there with everything that they got. And you, you, at the very end, you know, you've done everything you could do, but you're in the back of your mind, you're saying, can I do this? Can I do that? Should I have done this? Should I have done that? It makes it very, very tough. And to watch young people, make the sacrifice and do all the things they need to do and get the competition and have a problem and not make the team is devastating. It, it really hurts. And then, you you know, you don't sleep at night. You stay up worried about, you know, did I do this wrong? Should I push them here? Should I have done this? I mean, it, it, you, you're constantly second guessing yourself. And after you've done that, I, I don't know, a thousand times, then you start to realize, you know, there's a pattern of what, what works and what doesn't work. But our sport is so unique. Everybody's different. What works with one doesn't work with the other. You know, what works with a male won't necessarily work with a female. I mean, it, it, it's you have to treat everybody individually. It becomes much more difficult to do. Uh, developing programming and all that becomes even more difficult because you're constantly changing, you know, injuries uh, and, and the whole gambit of life getting in the way. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very aggravating. There's nothing worse to a coach than to spend a tremendous amount of time and energy and money on an athlete. And then all of a sudden, the athlete don't show up anymore. They just quit. And not only they don't they quit, they don't even come back to say goodbye to you. And it doesn't happen very often, but it, it's enough to aggravate the mess out of you because they become a child. You know, I have I have signed. Oh my God, I've I've signed uh, letters for cars. I've bought cars for kids. I've signed second on mortgages for homes. I mean, it, it's absolutely amazing what which what, what you do as a coach. You find jobs for these kids. I remember before I got married, I owned five homes in Savannah. And those were rented out at no rent to the athletes. I mean, it, it, it was it was something else. I mean, you you spend all your energy, all your time, all your money on trying to give the kids the best that the best of everything they can to be successful. The relationship between you know coach and athlete or coach and client is, is very definitely oh, yeah. very it's, strong. It's very very unique. Yeah, yeah, no question about it. No question about it. So kind of jump into where you currently are now. So you told us about how you got into coaching, but do you want to maybe get us up to speed on what happened? You know, like you're saying, they built your training center. And then what else did you do coaching wise after that? And where well, are you currently? In, in uh, 2013, I got a phone call from the uh, Wheelchair Basketball Association to work with their Olympic team to get them ready for the Rito in, in 2016. And I flew out to the Olympic Training Center. I met the I met the, the coaching staff, both the male and female team. They had selected 48 males and 48 females, and they were going to whittle them down to 12 and 12 in 2016. While I was working with the teams, which is designing programs for wheelchair basketball, which I didn't know anything about. I had to go and, and do a tremendous amount of research on, on that. And different programs for different individuals, a, a very, very evolved program. And as we got closer and closer to the final selection of our men's team, I was at the Olympic Trainer Center in 2016, and I got a phone call from uh, Parkinson's uh, Association, and they had asked me to design a program for Parkinson's strength and that type of thing. And so 
I, I told the, the woman on the phone, I said, I don't know anything about it. I mean, you know, I know, I know Muhammad Ali, I know Michael J. Fox, I know it's a neurological disease, but that's about the extent of my knowledge with it. So let me do some due diligence and I'll get back to you. So when I got back to Savannah about two weeks later, I spent some time and looked at it and developed a, uh, what I consider an all-inclusive program that met the needs that, that, that was dealing with everything that I saw there. I didn't want to copy or look at other programs that were being offered in the United States because they were basically for-profit and I was not interested in for-profit at all. And so I developed a program. The local Parkinson's support group gave me 16 uh, people uh, as guinea pigs to run the program. And we ran the program and 16 became 32 and 32 became 450. And so it's now one of the, considered one of the largest programs that we offer here at the facility. It is massive and a full staff that does everything with these individuals. Uh, it is a labor of love and that is spun off. We're actually going to work with individuals at their home now. So it's, it's, it, it has been a, a, a change. Obviously, the pandemic really affected that group because that group is a much older individual group. And so in the last I don't know, six months, we've seen our numbers go back up into the mid 200s. So we expect to be back up where we were in another year, you know, especially if things calm down a little bit. So that's a, a unique program that spun off of the Olympics. I mean, it, it came out of the Olympics. We run that program here. We've got uh, nine other locations throughout the United States. One in Barbados that does the exact same program that we do here. We train coaches. We teach them how to run the program, and we turn them loose. The game is plan is very simple. We're not therapists. We're not uh, doctors. We're coaches. And when those people walk in the gym, they're considered athletes, not patients, not clients. They're athletes. Big sign over the door. You're now an athlete. Active. And so they are now, so it's, it's amazing because they really enjoy being treated as, as an athlete. They, they really do. Whether they were athlete or not before time or what, they really enjoy it. In fact, they enjoy it so much that, that sometimes you hold back on your, your screaming and hollering and yelling like a coach will do, and they'll get mad at you. You don't like me no more. You're not yelling at me no more. You, you, know, you know, you treat me different. I want to be treated the same. And so – uh, a lot of those programs that we have running here at the center are run at the same time as our top athletes are training. So they get to train side by side to some of our better athletes. So it's a, it's a, it's a family affair. It's, 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 it's proved to be a lot of fun and I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It sounds like you developed a flagship program really for them. It, it's, it's, a, it's a very unique program. It's called get excited and move Jim G E M. And it's uh, it, it is, it has been a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoy it. When you work with an elite athlete, when you take an athlete from a child, you move them all the way to elite, they make the Olympic team and they win the medal Olympic team, fantastic. But when you take an individual that's suffering from essential tremors or dementia or Parkinson's and you work with them for four or five months and the next thing you know, the doctor that they work with call you, calls you on the phone and says, you know, I just saw Mike today. Oh my God, what are you doing with him? And I know well, we're doing this and this and this. We'll keep doing it. It's the best he's looked. He's actually gone the other way now. He's not progressing anymore. He's not only stopped, but he's actually improving. Keep pushing him. And so it, it's, it's, uh, we have a very close relationship with the medical community here. About 90% of the people that come see me are from the medical that, that uh, I, a young man, I say a young man, 52, uh, was diagnosed with Parkinson's on Monday afternoon. Monday evening, he showed up at the gym, went to see me, him and his wife, and said that the doctor said, I need to do this immediately because you'll stop it. You'll slow it down. And I said, sure. And so we started with him literally the next day we started with him. And so it's, it's, 
those are the kind of things that make you feel better. You know, you have an impact on somebody's life towards the end of their life. And that's very, very fulfilling. Yeah, I think impact is really why most people get into coaching, you know, trying to help change other people's lives. So yeah, absolutely. I, I want to kind of wrap up the part about your your background and then we're going to pass it over to Nick. But is there anything else you want to say about what you're currently doing? Because I know you are a coach for USAW and I know you do clinics and stuff like that. Too, yeah, but can, yeah. I, I do. Uh, I'm working with uh, Savannah State University and uh, I work with several schools in this area. I serve basically as a mentor position now, uh, working with athletes, working with with other coaches to, to to help them, you know, navigate that that as you know that minefield of coaching is tough to break into things. And the the uh, coaching that I do for the United States Weightlifting Federation as a lead instructor for their programs gets me out into the field where I meet new coaches. Uh, you know, it's funny because I like to teach the course. I like to teach what you need to be successful as far as passing the test. But more important, I'd like to teach you what you need to know to be successful and becoming a good coach in the gym. Because there's a lot of things that you need to know that are not taught in, in a book. You have to pick that up. And, you know, everything from the right equipment to the to the not making mistakes of this to, to working with kids and working with adults is a big difference in that. And, and, and watching the minefield that, that you can get yourself caught up into real quick if you're not careful. Awesome. Well, we're going to transition over to Nick now and right. ask you some rapid fire questions. Nick, do you want to jump in? Yeah. So, Michael, a fantastic story. I, I jotted down a bunch of notes. I'm like, Yo. I'm going to go look at this stuff. But uh, back to the point. So let's go after your lifting career, jumping into coaching. What's one of the biggest challenges that you faced? Oh, the biggest challenge by far is just convincing the kids' parents to allow them to do the weightlifting. It's a little easier now, but back in the day, there was no CrossFit. There was no, you know, people thought of weightlifting as, uh, you know, you did not go to a father and say, I want to work with your daughter on Olympic lifting. I think she could be real good because he's going to get mad at you. Yeah, you're going to make her gain to 300 pounds. Are you out of your mind? I want my little girl to look like a little girl. I don't want my little girl to look like a man. <laughs> so that was the biggest challenge right there. And I was fortunate because a lot of my first athletes in, in females were the cheerleaders and, and they didn't look like men at all. And, and, you know, next thing I know, I had girls coming in that, 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 you know, I want to look like that. That's what I want to look like. So it, it, that helped out. So I think that's probably the hardest part was, was dealing with the parents, making sure they understood what you were doing, uh, making sure the lines of communications are always open, making sure you, you, you did not cross any lines and that you kept yourself straight to what you were trying to do. And uh, you made sure that you didn't do anything to, to, to cause, cause concerns. I mean, you, you didn't do stupid stuff. You did, you did things the way you were supposed to do. Hey, I just want to say, too, that's still a concern I hear a lot from girls. So any women out there listening, just because you lift weights, that doesn't mean you're going to look oh, like no, a no, come on. Okay. No, no, no. We, we, unfortunately, we, uh, girls still see the damn pictures of the bodybuilders and don't realize that, you know, the vast majority of them are taking drugs to, to look like that. You've got to have a certain amount of testosterone in your body to produce that kind of muscle mass. And uh, my female athletes, like I told you in the beginning, they look like little gymnasts, a stair step all the way up. You know, you, you, know, you get to the super heavy, and that's a different ball game. You're unlimited. You can weigh whatever you want to weigh. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. When I was doing sports performance in Texas, mm -hmm. similar problem. But the biggest issue was, I have these parents come in, bringing young teenage kids in. Mm -hmm. You know, the kids are playing sport. They're lifting in school. He, he 
parents would come in and say, most of the guys, hey, I need my, my son to be faster. You know, when I was his age, I was this. So my question was always, oh, well, where'd you run in college? Oh, I didn't, you know, coach them like, to get them to do a try. Yeah. 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 The, the, Along those I, lines. Okay. Yeah. The, the thing about it is, is that I have the parents bring the kids in all the time and, and they are convinced that the child is, you know, the next superstar football player or basketball player or baseball player or whatever. And, you know, you take one look at them and you kind of figure out where, where they, they are on the pecking order. But the one thing you can't measure at the very beginning is the heart, you know, how much determination they have. Uh, we had a, a young lady, a, a young man in our team that took him 12 years of hard work to make it all the way to the national level. He, he didn't make the Olympic team, but he made the world team and the Pan Am team. And so he was right there at it, but it, it sometimes it's the heart. It requires that. So uh, we, we give everybody an opportunity here. Everybody gets a chance. No one's cut. No one's broken down. It, it, you give everybody their, their legal chance, their fair chance of, of doing whatever they go. Like I tell my kids all the time, the coach is not going to quit on you. You're going to quit on yourself. That's where it's going to be. Love that. Along those same lines, what are some of the biggest mistakes you see your coaches making? Biggest mistake? Yes. Oh, wow. Boy, I tell you what. I, I think the biggest mistake that coaches make around the country in weightlifting is they are too damn technical. Everything is technique, 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 technique. You know, Johnny, you missed that because you did this and this. No, Johnny missed that because it's too damn heavy. Okay. It is, you, you can have the greatest technique in the world, but if you don't have the strength, you're not going to make it. You can have the greatest strength in the world, but if you don't have technique, you ain't going to make it. But you still got to have power. You still got to have strength. And I watch coaches now, and, and they nitpick everything. Your best lifters, the lifters who won gold medal at the Olympics this year, don't have fantastic technique. They got good technique, but they can still improve. You're going to improve. It's like a golf swing. It's constantly getting better. It's constantly an evolution. But coaches nitpick it, and they keep going after it. You can't do that. When I do a clinic, I tell the individuals, I'm going to pick out the most egregious mistake you're making today. I'm going to correct that. You may be doing a lot of other things wrong, but I'm going to fix that today. I think that's the way to go. I watch a person do a lift. I'm okay with it. Did they do some things wrong? Yes. But it's, it's functionally correct. As long as they're in a safe position, that's the most important thing. I think coaches want to try to prove to their clients that they are incredibly bright. Their knowledge of kinesiology and physiology is, is part of nobody, and they can speak out the big words. They can talk about all the, the ligaments and the muscles and the bones and all that kind of stuff, but your client don't have a clue what you're talking about. I pride myself on talking to the level of the athlete, and, and therefore I'm going to speak at a level that they understand what we're talking about. Too many times a coach is all about them. It's not about the athlete. To me, it's about the athlete. Ooh. Let's let's delve into that just a little bit more. What what advice would you have? Or as a new coach, what skills do you think they need to develop? Well, a, a coach has to have a good eye. You've got to take a look at an athlete, a look at their position, and figure out what they're doing wrong. That's number one. And then what you can do to correct it. How do you correct that is not going on YouTube and watching videos. It's spending hours and days and weeks and months and years in the weight room to figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then having a hundred different options to every single kind of problem, because one size does not fit all. Everybody's different. If I tell you to pull the bar a certain way, 
Kenton may have to do the exact opposite of that to be successful. So being able to adapt is very, very important. The biggest problem I see with certain things, CrossFit is a great example, is that they teach one way and that's it. You do it this A, B, C, that's it. No, 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 everybody's different. It may be A, B, Q. I mean, you've got to figure out what works for your individuals. So having that ability to look at it, find the problem and see the problem and then have a, a set of ways to go about correcting that problem and then having different ways in case this doesn't work, this route, we'll try this route. If that don't work, we'll try this route over here. And we'll keep going until we find what works. Biggest trends in the industry now. The trends? Yes. Oh, my God, man. Are you kidding me? Uh, I see the, the, the philosophy of a shorter workout is something that I used for my entire career. Uh, when I was at the training center, Olympic training center, you train three, four hours a day, five, six days a week. And then it was you train you know, twice a day, four days, and then once a day, twice a day. And it was three times on this. And, and we got into the point where it was all about the length of time. And, and that's not right. It's about putting the, the work together. It's not qual- a quantity of time. It's quality of time. I like the fact that you're seeing more and more programs, CrossFit, Functional Fitness, some of these other offshoots of that are going with a 45-minute workout. I think that's fantastic. 10 minutes to stretch out, warm up, get ready, and blast it. I like that intensity. I, I really do. My the athletes that I put on the Olympic team that, that went on to win medals at the Olympics, no one trained more than two hours a day, and everybody trained four or five days a week max. You train hard and rest harder. That's the secret. And so I think when you start seeing programs start to go that way, that makes a lot more sense. Best way to track your programs? Any kind uh, of tools? Is it paper, pencil? Well, I got news for you. I got a friend of mine who, who writes programs. Uh, he does it by computer analysis. Uh, He has 500 plus clients around the United States. He can write a month's program in about 15 minutes. And then he shoots that same program to all 500 people. And to me, that is absolutely ridiculous because all 500 people have different needs, different wants, different requirements. I do mine individual by individual. One size does not fit all. So what I write for Kenton is not the same as I write for, for Deborah. Or Bob, you know, I've got a, a 12-year-old over here. I got a 79-year-old over here. So I believe in sitting down in front of a computer about 35, 45 minutes for each individual weekly. And then the week is based on what they did before and what they did after. Where's the next competitions are gearing for that? All those factors go into it. So to me, that makes sense. Now, when you do it that way, you can't have 500 people. And so, uh, you know, so if you're interested in making a lot of money, then you want to do a program like the computer program where one size fits all. It's all done by percent and you just give it to everybody and that's it. You're done with it. Uh, I'm not interested in that. I'm not, I'm interested. I've got, I've got 50 ish people that I work with around the United States range of age genders. I'm pretty happy with that. I don't need any more. Of that. It's not yes. a, soul, it's not a sole source of revenue by any stretch of imagination, but I do like the fact we had the Pan American championships masters in Orlando last week. I had 14 of my programmed athletes compete, 14. We did, we did really well. We had uh, nine gold medals, two silver, and we had the rest of them competing in their second competition ever. So I had a couple of fourths and a fifth and a sixth. I was thrilled about that. 
So I think that that's that's the way you go. That's the way you go. When you when you build a program, do you have a kind of base framework in your head? Oh yeah, you- yeah, 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 yeah. I, I I look at the athlete. First thing I do is I talk with them. What do they want to accomplish? Uh, obviously, I'm a weightlifting coach. Obviously, I think competition is critical. I, I really like that because it sets the bar. You see where you are. And you work towards a goal. I'm very goal oriented. Uh, I, I think that's the way to go. The vast majority of my people that I work as vast majority of them are competing at some level, uh, even ones that are brand slapping you uh, to me that I think that's the way to go. But we have goals and I sit down with each one and talk about it and uh, we determine which way to go. I would say 90 percent, 95 percent of the people that I work with, I've actually been face to face with either at a clinic or a, a, a training center or something like that. I've actually, I, I've got a relationship with it. I know them, And so uh, that makes it a lot easier for me. Nice. That's great. Ken, any questions on this before we get to the fun stuff? No, I think he hit the nail on the head. I mean, I just want to, I will say something about the programs. I think that's, you know, kind of what he was saying. It really depends on what's your preference for offering, whether that's individualized programming or having, you know, like a flagship program um, that's sold to the masses. Um, and I think you should be able to do all those things. If yeah, you want you or you be. can pick one, it's, it's whatever yeah, you like. Yeah, no, no question about it. I've been asked to develop a, uh, a flagship program that anybody could do. And when I go and do a clinic, usually the, the facility will ask me, is there a program that I could do for my athletes. And I actually developed a six week and eight week program for CrossFit, 45 minute workouts is generic and it's percentage based. So, you know, the guy, the owner can write it up on the board, chalkboard, and, and this is what we're going to do today. And there's the percentage and whatnot. And so, you know, every six week they, they do a little mini competition. They get together, they have a few beers, they have a lot of fun. And then they, they, they uh, find out some new PRs and they move and do another, they flip it again and again. Then there's an eight week and then there's a 16 week. So I have that, but nothing structural. My structural is the individual. Nice. Very cool. All right. So now the most important questions. All right, go. Favorite go. food. Favorite food. Pizza. Favorite book. Favorite book. Any one of Bill O'Reilly's killing. Killing the SS, killing Patton, killing Jesus, killing Crazy Horse. I, I just, uh, to me, it's just, I love history. And I love looking at history in a different view. I got to go back to the pizza one. That's my favorite. I'm an East Coast guy. Are you a thin crust, thick crust? And what do you like on it? Uh, not only am I a thick crust, but I used to own a pizza parlor and used to make my dough and sauces all fresh. And in my younger years, when I didn't have a whole lot to do, uh, thick crust by far is my favorite. I, I like it. The thicker, the better. Pepperoni, uh, you know, all meat's good. Let's be honest. But I'll, uh, pepperoni, I'm a, tr- a traditionalist, pepperoni. Oh, I thought many, many a time of opening an ice cream parlor, but I'm like, there, there's oh, no God. way. Have oh, God, I've time? done that. I've done that. I actually owned, owned several in Savannah. One of them was called Cohen's Ice Cream Bar, B-A-R, for the weightlifting bar. And the picture was an ice cream cone with a guy lifting the weight over his head. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, you know, I did that when, when I had a lot of young athletes that needed jobs. And so I said, well, you know, hell, I'll just open up these businesses and let them work the damn jobs. And, you know, I, I, I knew the boss was going to be lenient on letting them go all over the damn world. So uh, that, that was, it was a good, it was a lot of fun at that time. Very cool. Uh, favorite movie or one of your favorite movies? Favorite movie, Pat. Nice. And something unique about you that has nothing to do with fitness or weightlifting. I enjoy driving. 
I do about 75 to 85,000 miles a year. And I'd rather drive to clinics than to fly. And I like to drive. So I have driven all the way up to, oh my God, to, to Alberta. Uh, I've gone to Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota. I mean, I, I, I enjoy the solitude of the road. I get to think, I get to plan out stuff. It is something I, I truly enjoy. I like the solitude. Yeah, add one to that. Favorite place to go? Uh, Cayman. Ooh. Cayman Islands. No, no question about it. My wife and I, up until the pandemic, three times a year, we went there. Not now, though. It's closed. All right. Well, Coach, it has really been an honor to interview you. And it's been, you know, a lot of fun and a lot of information. I wish we had more time. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you all having me. And whenever I can uh, help you out again, let me know. I'd love to be involved with it. I love talking to you. All right. One last question for you. What is the best way uh, for listeners to keep in contact with you? Uh, Cohen weightlifting at AOL.com. Cohen weightlifting at AOL.com. And do you have a website or Instagram, anything like that? Yeah. Cohen uh, uh, underscore weightlifting. And uh, uh, if they they Google Cohen weightlifting, it'll pop up. Obviously, I don't handle that. I have somebody. (laughs) My wife does that. So. (laughs) Yeah, no technology. Yeah. Get in the gym, lift those That's weights. It. It. But yeah, thank you for being uh, with us today, Coach. And anybody listening out there, check out his website, check out his Instagram, and shoot him an email if you're interested in uh, some program design.